Both knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 368. Jason Lingren is with me and a gentleman who is going to use the pseudonym Big Al. Uh, this is a story of what happened when he became ill and had it to go to a hospital. And it's kind of astounding what follows. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. All right. Welcome, Big Al. Morning, fellas. How we doing? Hanging in there. Uh, winter's on the way. That's for sure. Getting some rain. We sure are. Yeah, we, we actually have. But oh, actually, I should mention we're recording this on Halloween day. We've had rain for a solid week, mostly, and it cleared up today. So maybe the children can go get that healthy candy under decent weather. Um, anyhow, uh, let's jump in. Can you give us a little of your background to demonstrate to people that you're familiar with how healthcare works? Absolutely. I, uh, I have been an optometrist for over 30 years and started looking into holistic, naturalistic type treatments probably within the last 10 years. Absolutely. I've made changes in my lifestyle, my family's lifestyle, patients that are interested. Uh, certainly we'll talk to them at length about these kind of things and uh, started to lose faith in our, our system. Yeah, maybe about at the same time, 10 years ago or so, uh, when I started to look at what happened on 9-11 and someone said, read the book, Creature from Jekyll Island. And those two things really changed how I look at everything and started going down lots more rabbit holes. So that's basically my history. I'm always in the computer or books looking for information about anything that goes on around us. So Al, before we get into this, do you feel like you're recovered from everything we're about to cover here? Or are you still dealing with after effects? Oh, after effects for sure. I'm sitting here talking to you with a very low flow oxygen on my nose. Your blood oxygen is low. I guess that means, right? Actually, my, uh, my blood oxygen is fine, but I get tired a little bit more quickly. Uh, if I don't have, I've got a, a concentrator with a three liter flow for bedtime, but anytime I'm at home, I, I often will put it on. It just makes things easier for me. Can't believe how quickly I run out of steam. All right. So let's get into this tale of woe at some point. I guess it's December, 2019, you get sick and you're told you have COVID. Well, December of 2019, they had not announced COVID yet. Oh, of course. <laughs> and I, I, I was sick for about six weeks, the whole month of December, sick, sick, sick. I've never been so sick in my life. Wished I was dead at a couple points. Asked doctors I worked with, I worked in a multidisciplinary clinic. They said, I mean, you know, there's flu going around, but we don't know anything. I uh, don't, don't know what to tell you. I just ate ibuprofen by the handful almost. Uh, just to get out of bed and try to work. Nobody in my household got sick at that time. Not one other person. I was half dead for six weeks. Very slow recovery again. Then we jump ahead a couple of months and here they're talking about COVID. And, uh, you know, if you talk, I don't know how many people you've spoken to. This started before March, whatever. Uh, I've, I've spoken to so many people that say they had it in November, December, January. Um, I, I talked to patients all day long and they all say the same thing. Well, we, we get caught in a trap here using the language, and I'm going to have to do what I do every episode. Someone says virus, someone says COVID, you know, it's, right. it's all a trap. But um, yeah. so basically this was, would you describe it as a flu, um, but a terrible flu? And I, and I got to ask, we've heard from so many people, they got what I would describe as a terrible flu and they lost their sense of taste and smell. I did not. My sense of uh, taste was altered a little bit, a little bit, but I did not lose it either time. Uh, I could taste my food and just wasn't hungry. Uh, lost about 40 pounds this last time around. Wow. <laughs> so that didn't happen to me. Uh, this last time around, my wife did get a little under the weather, coughing, sneezing, that kind of thing for about three days. And I think her sense of taste was uh, only slightly altered as well. So you get terribly sick in December yes. of 2019, but you don't actually end up going in anywhere until the following year in September, 2020, is that right? No, I actually, I got better, uh, went back. Uh, you know, I don't think, I don't feel like I was ever really myself again. I've always been sort of a, a big guy, go out, pick stuff up, move stuff around, don't get real tired. I, I've been tired the last year and a half, but I never went to a doctor or anything. I just, I just recovered very slowly. Then come around to this year, uh, 21, I got sick all over again. But I feel like it was coming on for several months 
and I didn't know it. It was so gradual until I finally got sick. And my wife was like, what is going on with you? So, okay. In December, 2019, you get terribly ill. So then all the way up into 2021, you get sick again. Correct. And so at that point, did you feel like you recovered it all in between? Oh, yes. I, I was absolutely, even now, I'm back to work full time, okay. back to work, doing stuff in my yard, lots of different stuff. I mean, I, I wasn't really down or anything, but looking back, I feel like that last year, I just wasn't 100%. I was maybe 90%. So in September of 2021, am I messing up these notes, Al? So in September of 2021, you go, you finally go into the ER? So in September... Uh, I started getting sick again, like a whole different round, getting tired, just a whole second, a whole separate set of, you know, I had the flu two years ago, gee, I got it again this year and uh, was, was feeling uh, a little bit tired for several weeks prior, maybe even a couple of months. And then I got to where I couldn't go to work. I had to call off work a couple of times. My wife was looking at me like, man, you're, you're not well. We happened to have uh, so that, so that, that actually, that part was about a week. And then somebody said, well, check his pulse ox. And, uh, are you guys familiar with what that does? Put the little thing on your finger and what it's supposed to read. Are, are we talking about blood oxygen again? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, somebody said that needs to be definitely above 90. They really like it about 95. So we happen to have one in, in the house here and we put on my finger and read 69 and my wife said, you're going to the hospital right now. And that's when I ended up in the hospital. She called my uh, relative who came and helped her get me there. And that's kind of when the story really starts. All right, Jason, why don't you jump in? I feel like I'm butchering the flow here. How bad were you feeling when you finally decided, okay, I will go in the hospital? So I felt very similar to what I did a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, when I had it the first time around, I really did feel very similar. Uh, just and never checked my oxygen, you know, two years ago, uh, I was, it was hard for me to do about anything. I really, for me to call off work, I've been doing what I do for 30 some years. And up until the last two years, I think I called off work one time in 30 years. I don't miss work and I missed days of work with this. So I was not feeling well, but I did not want to go to the hospital. My wife and I uh, had talked about, you know, that's just, that's, that's not good when you end up there. So we need to try and stay away, but your, your, your oxygen level dips down that low. You're really doing damage to a lot of things. So I had to go. So I just gave in and they said, fine. Uh, no, no, I didn't feel good. I didn't feel good at all. So Jason, let me interrupt one more time. I got to ask, did other people that were around you get sick too? Not that I am aware of. I, like I said, my wife at the outset had about three days where she coughed, sneezed a little bit, but really nothing from anybody. No. Now, if you had access to the equipment, could you have just stayed home, put yourself on oxygen and done the normal things, vitamin C, vitamin D, all that kind of stuff? I would have preferred to do that. Yeah, I, I think I could have. They had me on a really, really high oxygen flow the first two days I was in there. 60 liters, 50 liters, a BiPAP machine, which, which pumps it in through your mouth like a CPAP, but sort of stronger. Is that damaging? Um, it, no, that's more like, you know, when you do a sleep study and they say you're, you're getting a sleep apnea, so you need the CPAP to sleep at night. Mm. And interestingly, I had a sleep study schedule. I've been told for 25 years, I have sleep apnea and I just ignored them. And I had a sleep study scheduled for the exact same week I went in the hospital and we'll maybe come around back to that topic later on. <laughs> All right. So you... Go to the ER? Is that what was the next step? Yes. Yeah, went to the ER. The um, ER that I went to was sort of like a branch ER from a main, a main hospital. Uh, the branch ER is in the town we live in, so it's two minutes away. Like a standalone? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it used to be a hospital, and they just converted it to an ER, and I think almost like a recovery center, something like that. So uh, I went there, and we thought perhaps I would go in, get some fluids. I was terribly, terribly dehydrated and some oxygen, stay in the ER for half a day or almost a day, and come home. And so, rolled in the ER, nobody, nobody else around, and I, I, I kid you not, now I'm sort of in this, you know, have anybody ever said to you the, the corona fog or the COVID haze, you know, when your, when your oxygen level's that low, 
not everything is perfectly clear, but I'd tell you within a minute, they had wheeled me away from my wife, never to see her again. They split you up the minute you get in the door. Man, man. This is where things go south, right, Jason? We've heard it over and over. Yeah, they separate you. And a lot of times people, even if they have their phone, they probably don't have a charger with them. And this is where things start going downhill real quick. So how did that play out for you? Yeah, interestingly, uh, I, I did have a charger. My wife was like, you take this charger with you. But it got lost transferring me around, of course. Although I was able to get another one, so that wasn't a big deal. But I just, I want to stress something as maybe the first biggest point, which is, if you are, are listening to this crow episodes on this, talk to your spouse, get everything so that you understand what each other wants, what you want to do, and just literally swear to each other that you are going to uphold. If, you're, if your spouse says, I don't want a ventilator, because they are going to try so hard to talk you into that kind of stuff. It's, it's incredible. So have a plan is, is what you're pointing out. Have a solid plan. We've heard this from... Other people, Jessica Brink, there's been many other people that we've talked to that said, when you walk in those doors, you damn well better have a plan. And you are additionally adding on how critical it is to have your spouse or your significant other on board with that plan. By, by the way, did you guys walk in with a plan of any sort or did you literally expect to be out in a few hours and didn't have a plan? No, we had talked about this topic on more than one occasion and knew what each other wanted and as far back as a week or two had, had solidified when I started feeling sick. Uh, hey, you know, anything happens, this is what I want. And she said, I agree. I want the same thing. No vent, no rib death is near. So we knew, because uh, man, they try to separate you and get one of you to okay something. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely were ready for that. Although I, I would mention family is a different story. It's very hard to do this with family that doesn't agree. Uh, my wife and I have only been married for about five, six years. And, uh, you know, I've had my family forever. I'm in my fifties and, uh, they, they thought I should do what the hospital said. Uh, they just didn't really know any better. I tried to tell them they sort of listened, but they still, you know, it's hard to make that jump sometimes for, for family and friends. Uh, and there are some, some, not too many, but a few people, I think relatively miffed with my wife that she just would not listen to we know what we want, and that's what we're going to do. And they couldn't get any word in edgewise. So dealing with family is very difficult. And I run into that all the time, just talking to patients, people I work with. Uh, boy, family can almost be worse than the hospital. But the hospital is pretty bad. Well, if they're buying the BS, then yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. That's one of the key tools of our time, all that division. It makes everything so difficult. And our language has that division in it. We're going to have a discussion here and there are going to be endless people who get stuck on the use of a word, but I'm just going to bypass that. So you've gone in, you've been separated. What are the first things that are done? Are you assessed in some way? What are you told? I'm going to say that almost before any assessment, I mean, they listened to my chest. That was about it. Probably took a temp, uh, the quickest things that they do to the pulse ox. And they said, you have COVID pneumonia. From wait a minute. How did they come up with that? diagnosis? What did they do to know this? They had basically, they did a quick COVID test, said you're positive. You know, the quick things that, you, that they do when you go to a doctor or an ER. But what are those things? Are you talking about a nose swab? They did a nose swab for a COVID test. They did uh, listen to my lungs. They did a pulse ox, the, the, the red light on your finger thing, and then temperature. Uh, but I did not have any x-ray uh, of my lungs. I did have a CT of my lungs later that I think I went to the hospital four or five in the afternoon and I had a CT about two in the morning to look at my lungs. But they immediately made a diagnosis of two things, uh, COVID pneumonia and my wife had written down, which I don't remember them saying, but she wrote it down, uh, kidney injury. What? Kidney injury. So wait a minute. You got a nose swab. You got your blood oxygen checked. They listened to your lungs. And someone said that you had first a disease and secondarily kidney injury. Yes. And now I, I cannot, I'll, I'll be I'll very, very honest with you guys. I cannot say at what point along the way they said that I had the kidney injury, but it's very early in my wife's notes. But they made the point of telling her if his kidneys 
get worse, he may have to go on dialysis. Is it possible they were mixing you up with someone else? My father died of renal failure. I know all about what happens with kidney issues. I dealt with it for years until my father decided I'm not living like this. And he went off dialysis, which means you're going to be dead in a week. You are. Yeah. My dad died the same way. I'm I'm not a medical professional, but I'm pretty sure you can't assess the kidneys in that way. I mean, I was with my dad every step of the way. And by the way, my father was killed by a misdiagnosis or a misapplication of drugs is what destroyed his kidneys. But anyhow, let's get back on track here. So what's, what's happening at this point? So they immediately put me into a room kind of off in the corner by myself. And I just sort of laid in there. They would check me every once in a while. I certainly started an IV. I can't believe how dehydrated I was. I had an IV for a week that until I was rehydrated, I just so, so dehydrated. Why weren't you drinking water? Because you felt so bad or what's the cause? Uh, I, I tried. I carried water around and I was trying to drink it. I, I don't have an answer for you. I guess I just was sick enough that I wasn't drinking or eating as much as I needed to. Is it coming? Are you throwing up? Or are, you having di- are you doing things that might lose liquid? No throwing up. Perhaps some of the other end coming out, a little, little water. Yeah, a little diarrhea. That was probably the case. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was in this room for maybe about uh, less than 24 hours. And they said, we're going to move you to the main campus. Uh, you'll take it, you know, an ambulance ride. I'm like, you are? <laughs> oh, man. Which means you're being admitted, basically. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And where's your wife as you're being admitted? Well, she is at home by this point. Mm. Uh, she had to you know, register me. They ask her to sign off paperwork, you know, while she's there. Uh, if we need to do any sort of treatment, you, you give authorization. She would not sign it, wouldn't sign a thing, would not sign a thing. And that really made them mad. The lady that worked in registration was pretty mad at her. Um, and she would continue to get phone calls from the nurses and doctors wanting her to okay different treatments. And she just would not. She knew that's not the, what we could do. Did you guys give directions of things not to do within your plan? In registration, she said, no ventilator, no remdesivir. How did you know about remdesivir and the ventilator? Jason and I have covered it and we've had medical professionals and studies on numbers. I don't know the value of numbers in the current world. Uh, The VAERS reporting is supposed to be less than 1%, but those two things, your mortality goes up by 50% or better. How did right. you know? Right. Certainly, I, uh, I, I get on leads from your show, things that, that are said on your show. I listen to just about every episode uh, and uh, check those out. Uh, I, I get uh, you know, different feeds, uh, emails, uh, newsletters from various sources uh, that uh, are uh, basically rabbit hole type sources. And they all basically say the same thing. Uh, that ventilator. And, and right now, what I'm noticing is less is applied to the remdesivir and more to the ventilator. When you get put on that ventilator, you're probably not going home uh, type of a deal. Uh, but I know that, rem, that remdesivir is very um, ravaging on all of your organs, uh, especially your kidneys, which is interesting. Uh, so you've got a kidney problem, but <laughs> well, we want, <laughs> yeah, 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 I see where you're going there. I think it was Dr. Trebing that let everyone link over to the study that showed the mortality rate. Okay. Okay. I did not see his, although I have his book, it's sitting here about three feet away from me. I, uh, I, was, I just haven't had a chance now to get, to get to it and finish it. But, um, and this is what I was going to mention a little bit later as this all story all comes together. Also, while I was in ICU, they started me on an antibiotic called Leviquin. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I haven't. That particular antibiotic itself has a couple generics, but it was discontinued six years ago. Got a black box warning. Now, do you know what that is? Uh, I can guess, but please, please let us know. So they're, they're issuing you a drug that's been known to be problematic for six years. What is the problem and what is black box? Black box warning can happen to any drug once it's fully approved by the FDA and released just for general use by doctors. After it's been out for several years, they can. They can go back and say, hey, what's going on here? This is, uh, this is causing some problems. If you remember back to 
was it Vioxx, Celebrex had a situation where they had to be pulled from the market and uh, different medications. They'll put a black box warning sometimes to say this medication can affect this organ system or this or that. And then you have to be real careful prescribing it. And that, that group of antibiotics, fluoroquinolones, very powerful antibiotic for people, uh, that Levaquin is one of them. So it has a black box warning. And really the biggest black box warning is more about how it dissolves kind of tendons that people have tendon rupture six months out after taking it as far as six months out. Did they ask you to administer this to you or did they ever tell you about possible side effects, any of this kind of thing? Certainly nothing like that. And in what I do in my office, when people will have different issues with their eye, where overwork contact lenses get corneal ulcers, we have to use very powerful antibiotics sometimes. And, and we could discuss that and bring Trebbing in on that uh, conversation. But uh, to get some of these corneal ulcers, you've got to use some powerful antibiotics. I can't, I don't know any other way to treat them. And a fluoroquinolone is what we use, but we don't, it's not systemic. It's a drop. It goes in the eye and just doesn't reach the rest of the body. The very, very few side effects versus how quickly it heals things in the eye. So what you're saying is that you knew something about this drug. So when they administered it, you knew more than the average person would know, right? Well, I knew more than the average person, but was in the fog. And so they said, this is an antibiotic for your kidney infection. And I said, okay. Were you in any shape to make decisions? Was there any way in hell you should have been making decisions? You said you're in a fog. There's the fog, but I'm, I really feel like for a general, in general, I was pretty with it. I mean, there were moments where I was very tired, whether I should have let them give me the Leviquin, I could not think what the black box was at that particular moment. I don't, you know, there's so many thousands and thousands of drugs. I'll, I deal with very few of them. I don't have a black box memorized. I just look them up on my phone. And that's the thing. Once I realized what was going on about three, four days in, I looked it up on my phone. I'm like, oh man, it also has trouble it bothers kidneys. There are lots of reports of this uh, type of medication affecting kidneys in a very adverse way. So if they tell you you have kidney injury and then give you remdesivir and Leviquin, what are they trying to do? Jeez. You know, <laughs> I, I, I see in your notes before I hand it over to Jason to pull us in further, in your notes you had written, it was about 45 seconds after entering the ER that you were <laughs> separated from your wife and you didn't see any family member until you were discharged. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. It did keep my phone. It was charged. The battery got a little low. We rounded up a charger. So I was able to contact her pretty much. I mean, she was a pure basket case. You just can't even imagine how beside herself she was until she picked me up from the hospital. Could barely think straight herself. But together we were able to, they would ask her, can we do this? No, they'd come to me. Your wife says we can't put you on a ventilator. You know, you'll die if you don't get put on the ventilator. I do, but don't put me on it. Wow. Are you sure? And they would say, well, can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do this? Can we do that? And I'm like, listen, no ventilator, no rem death is near. So, yeah. So you've also gotten the notes that you were desperately trying to get something called ivermectin and you couldn't. And I guess eventually right before you get admitted, you did. And you're saying that the staff gave you a hard time. And you're basically a doctor, right? You're an optometrist. So yeah. you prescribe is my point, but the staff was like all over you, like a wet blanket saying, how did you get the ivermectin and all that? And what is ivermectin and why did you choose to do it? Just tell us the ivermectin story. Well, the ivermectin certainly has been talked about along with hydroxychloroquine uh, as being a good treatments. And I uh, went out and looked for some. And I am not an expert on, on obtaining this stuff. So don't look to me for a, where to get it. Uh, but there are certainly some doctors online that you could go to who will tele-help you, uh, write a prescription, perhaps direct you to a pharmacy that can fill it. They're really tightening down every day. The screws get tighter. This stuff is being held in customs, from what I understand. You just can't get it. We use an alternative source. I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to discuss. Yeah, maybe not. But I got it. But unfortunately, at that point, it was a little too late. And I was taking the dose for prevention, not cure. The, the dose, if you really have a case of COVID, is uh, to, to, uh, to triple the, the amount you take, which I just did not do. 
if you had it to do all over again, would you have taken ivermectin up front? Would you have gone to the hospital? What, what would you have changed? And we're only partway into the story and it gets much worse. But up to this point, hindsight's twenty twenty. Would you have done the same things? Would you have taken ivermectin? Would you have gone to the ER? Or would you have done something different? I absolutely would have taken ivermectin. Uh, I would have probably, if I could have done some hydroxychloroquine, taken that. Uh, would I have gone to the ER? I, I don't know if you have a choice, Crow. When, you're, when your pulse ox is 69, so your blood oxygen level, that's pretty low. And most people think you're at death's door. Right. I, you know, I, I don't think anyone can argue when you can't, when you're getting to the point of not being able to remain conscious or function, you know, there's so few choices, which is a big part of what this episode is about foreknowledge. How do people navigate if you've got to go in there now? It's not, to me, it doesn't feel the same. You know, I've got a 90 year old mother. I've been in there a few times. I even had to go in right before, well, it was right after all this happened in 2020. And from that point to this, it is a whole different feeling when you walk through those doors. It doesn't feel professional. Yes. It feels like like some kind of an assembly. I, I don't even know how to describe it. There, there are no words to describe the difference that when I was younger, you, you felt like people were professional. Agreed. That all seems to have gone out the window now. And we could talk about the reasons. But so how many times do you suppose uh, the effort was made? To, give, to get you onto a ventilator and give you remdesivir. And the reason I'm asking is because they told you you were going to die if you didn't do these things. And I'm here talking to you. So that's clearly not correct, provably not correct. But how many times do you think they contacted your wife or yourself to try to get you on the vent and try to, uh, to give you remdesivir? Well, oh gosh, I don't have a count. It could be a dozen. I, I think the word a lot covers. <laughs> a lot covers it between her and I, uh, I was going to, oh, gosh, I was going to say something uh, regarding your last question just to finish that off. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. Cause they repeatedly, I think, uh, I think you've got a note there that uh, talks about one doctor actually called my wife at home and said, we need uh, permission to put your husband on a ventilator. And he said it just like that. And she just freaked out. Like what you got to put on? Like, no, 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 no. What are you, what are you talking about? This basket case. Did she try to come in at that point? Did she ever try to come in? Was she ever barred from coming to see you? <laughs> I, I tell you, I've got a little kind of a kind of a funny story. If I'll throw it in here, she freaked. She said, "No, he cannot go on a ventilator." The doctor said, "Well, what are you going to do? Just let him die?" And she said, "Well, yeah, or, or bring him home for hospice." And he, he he hung up on her. Wow. And she filed it. She actually filed a grievance with the hospital over that one, filed a report with the hospital on that. Hung up on by a doctor, man. There's the level of professionality in our current world. But left her hanging like we're going to put him on a vent. Now, I, I know. Word, you know, he secondarily changed his, his wording after she kind of freaked a little bit. Well, we're not going to do it right now. We just, if we need to in the future, uh, we all know what that means. If you guys would have signed all the documents when you were admitted, would you have somehow given permission at that point? Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, is it possible that during admission you could sign documents and they wouldn't even be asking to do things later? They would just be doing? I'm certain of that. Yeah. And I don't, the way they're doing it, you mentioned assembly line, you mentioned herd, I don't, I don't think he's at herd of cattle, but it's very much like that. There is almost no, no personal touch, no, no nothing along those lines. Nobody's listening to a word you say. It is an assembly line. Everybody who tests positive is going to get this. And if they don't test positive, they're going to get that. Well, it's an assembly line with malice though, isn't it? If a physician called me and my wife was in the hospital and said, we got to put her on a ventilator, my heart rate's already going up. If he then tells me if we don't do this, she's going to die. Now my heart rate's peaked. And then he turns around and hangs up the phone. Right. What kind of a world is that? Right. You know, the person you love most in the world or your, your better half or whatever you want to say is on death's door here and then hang up the phone. Right. Right. Unreal. Yeah. So she was really just beside herself. So she called our son-in-law and our son-in-law is an interesting cat. Really like him. Mid twenties, very, very knowledgeable, intelligent fella. He can, he can design, fix, repair just about anything with his background. And uh, he's smart cookie, 
but also very, very family oriented, would do anything for family. She called and said, they want to put Big Al on a ventilator. And I don't know what to do. And he was unsure of what he was supposed to do, but he was at work and he said, all right, I'll be there. So he left work and he was the last one there. He worked, um, let's just say in a parts department somewhere. And he was the last one to leave for the day, but his shift wasn't over. And he just locked up and left. And uh, he was, I pictured him driving to the hospital and carrying me out. And I'm a big fella. Um, He came here to get her and ended up being able to calm her down and not having to come to the hospital. I literally, this guy, he's the enforcer in any room. He's the enforcer. And I could just picture him coming into the hospital and pulling me out. Uh, So that's kind of the funny story. But the next day he went back to work and they said, man, is this going to keep happening? Like uh, you, you are supposed to be at work. He said, I'll be at work, but if my family calls, I'm going to go take care of my family. And so 20 minutes later, they fired him. But the good news is the next day he got a, he got a call to interview at a place uh, that pays three times as much and is working that job now. So completely different job, but he got a better job out of the deal. So here's where we're about to start going to a bridge that is so too far that words don't describe. And Lord knows how many times this is happening everywhere. But in your notes, you said every time you saw a nurse or someone coming in and out, you literally asked them, what are you doing? What, what's going on here? What are you trying to give me? Yes. Now, at one point, a nurse comes in to flush out your IV. You told us you were getting liquids. For anyone who's not aware, quite frequently, they'll put saline or something in an IV. But once that IV is in, they can tap anything into an IV to get something in you. It's like a little spigot. They can attach any hose they want. So pick it up right there. You notice that the nurse is flushing your IV. And uh, by the way, I will further say everywhere the word remdesivir is written in your notes, you wrote remdeath is near. Yes, absolutely. All right. So they're flushing your IV and tell the horror story. Yeah. So actually he came in, uh, this particular nurse, I did not like this guy. He didn't hear a word I said, and he did some things. It, it just left me pretty super angry. This is just on the first, you know, I had, I had arrived in the hospital two hours ago or whatever, five hours ago. And that afternoon was just pure hell. So he comes in and I said, okay, well, what are you going to give me now? And he said, I've got to, I've got to flush out this port here after I gave you remdesivir. I said, what? He snuck the remdesivir in. And so let's recap here. You made it pretty clear. You don't want to be on a ventilator or get remdesivir. Your wife made it pretty clear. So, I mean, I want to ask so many questions. Are you taking legal act? I mean, <laughs> what the hell? How did he sneak it in? You know, I don't know because my guard was up. Um, I guess I had a few moments where I was just like, okay, you know, I just thought it was clear. There were probably half a dozen different doctors that asked me asked my wife, well, you know, if we need a vent, okay, we're going to start them on remdesivir. They were told multiple, multiple times, no remdesivir, no vent. I mean, I, the, the, the list is endless. I don't know how many times you've already asked me that. I don't know. Every time I said to the nurse, remdesivir, I'm not supposed to get that. You, this hospital was told no on the remdesivir multiple times. Well, could you have said yes one time? Well, no. Besides that, that's it. A completely separate topic here, uh, Crow and Jason, that's an experimental drug. They're supposed to get your signature that they use a drug like that. Not just a verbal okay. That's an experimental drug. So you're telling me, and that's a nurse, so I'm assuming a nurse needs a doctor's order. Yes. Or does, is that all out the door now? Did it, Do you know <laughs> that a doctor gave the order, or did the nurse just decide it was a good thing to do? <laughs> well... There's more to that story here in a couple of days. We'll get to that. I'm going to assume the doctor wrote the order. Uh, in fact, I'm in this instance, I'm pretty sure the doctor wrote the order. I got the feeling, this is interesting, and I don't have any way to prove this. I got the feeling that when I said that to the nurse, he got a little worried and tried to back the order out of the computer and was unsuccessful. I can't tell you any more than that. I don't know any more than that, but it's got a weird feeling. 
shouldn't there have been a, an approval with a signature? I mean, I've been in hospitals when I had to have my hernia surgery and that that's what they did to me too. Um, they waited till I was like ready to go in and they said, Oh, you haven't signed these things. So there you are kind of dopey and they're looking for your signature, but I'm guessing for anything like that, they need your permission. And these days they always ask for a signature, don't they? They're supposed to certainly. Uh, I don't think with remdesivir, they are asking for any of the agents that we're going to give you this. And that is it. I don't think with anybody they're getting permission. Uh, it's been said by the NIH and you know who that that's the treatment and everybody just follows it. It's unreal. All right. So what's going to be the, I mean, are, are you going to, to take any steps? Are you going to take legal action? I mean, you've had a dose of remdesivir that you didn't want put into your body. Will, will you be taking any action on the backside of this or, and you can tell me to mind my own business too, during any of this. No, I, you know, my understanding of, of legal things and I have, believe me, I have followed every single, probably listened more than once every episode you've had with Alphonse and several other people, I eat that stuff up. In fact, we've used it in my family, not me, but, but the son-in-law I mentioned I, at this point, I can't say that I have damages. Well, that's a good thing. Yes. Yes. I'd rather be able to say I don't have damages than here's my damages. Now hand over some cash. But just to be clear, you do actually have damages. Your rights were violated. You specified not to do a thing. It just made my brain starts spinning. How many other people, you know, and that's really the point of shows like this, because you were paying attention, you'd give the directions and you're not even quite sure how the hell he got it into you. And when you asked, he said he was fleshing your IV. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I was so startled when he said that. Uh, I, it, it took me a couple seconds just to regain my composure. Like, are you kidding me? After all the times we've said no, and the idea that he might have gone back and tried to pull that order from the computer, somebody said it was half in and half out. And I just don't, I don't know. So I can't, I can't stick to that story. I Did they call like your he, wife after? I mean, you, you have in your notes that they called your wife. Did, how does your uh, wife get called? Oh, you did. I called her, probably texted her either. uh, And I said, they gave me a dose of remdesivir. Well, as I've already mentioned, she's already a basket case. She just absolutely, she assumes I had remdesivir and I'm going to be dead tomorrow. So she's freaking out. She has already got the name of a lawyer who is fairly up on this particular topic, uh, relatively local. And, and got a hold of this lawyer and had them, uh, they actually wrote documents that they sent to the hospital to say, do not put this person on a vent. Do not put this person, do not give them remdesivir. Like a cease, did, did a lawyer actually give a cease and desist order to the hospital? So here's the thing. I haven't seen what the lawyer sent to the hospital. So I can't say, but she called a lawyer and they sent paperwork to the hospital. Yes. Unreal. So. Before we move forward, I'm going to say a sentence here. That was the first day, everybody following <laughs> this little tale. That was day one. So before we move on, how many guests have we had on that are medical professionals and much more professional than many of the stories we're hearing that tell you have a damn plan when you walk in that door? If you are married or have a significant other, make certain that you are in lockstep with that plan. And as Big L has pointed out in spades, pay attention. Somehow he got a dose of a drug he didn't want and was told there was an IV flush going on. And what's so kind of critically jarring about that is when you're that sick that you know you have to go to the ER, your oxygen's down, you might not have enough energy to walk, you're starting to get foggy in your mind, you might be grasping to not pass out or go to sleep, and no one's there with you. The wife somewhere else, the significant other is, is not by your bedside, which traditionally in all my lifetime, when something serious was going on, your family was there with you. Someone in your family was there with you. And these are all critical things to consider. Um, and how many guests have we had on now that's just simply say you go to the hospital when it's absolutely necessary at no other time. Do you, they're even running on the news where I am here just because you think you got sick, don't come to the ER because our ERs can't take it anymore. 
And as the stories I've told about my mother, they're not kidding. When I went in, the entire hospital was empty. The ER was bulging at the seams. All right. So we're moving on to day two here, Big Al. Yes. Yeah. While I was uh, in that first floor, they were waiting for a room in the ICU to open up. I think they pretty much knew right away they wanted to get me to that ICU because my blood oxygen was so low. And so eventually I think something opened up and they, they went to take me up. I just want to re-mention, you said it, I've said it. It's like a herd of cattle. Uh, I had a moment where, you know, I've been at this first ER for however many, 15, 16, 18 hours. They transfer me. I, I'm not sure if I've gone to the bathroom in that time. And I desperately needed to go. And this nurse that I didn't like, I said, I, I need to go to the bathroom. He went out and he came back. He threw a porta potty into the room and left. And at this point, I, I really am having trouble getting around. I'm attached on both sides of the bed with IV or blood pressure cuff or God. who knows what. I can't get out of the bed to go to the porta potty. And this guy is off chasing other nurses because he's a young guy. And you now when they, when they transferred me to the ICU, he went along with the ICU transfer team because he wanted to flirt with the nurses. And all I could think was get the care of this guy. This guy is going to be the death of me. He is driving me insane. Now is this day, is this the end of day one when you do the ICU transfer or is this day two? Yeah, basically making, let's call it in between. I mean, I'm going to say I got to the ICU about 29, 30 hours after I initially went to the ER in the hometown. So it was that day one and a quarter, whatever they squeezed it in. So we'll call it beginning of day two. So before we go on to day two, when you got there, was it bulging at the seams, the ER? When I got to the ER in the local town, no, it was not. That, our, that ER tends to not be busy. It's why we've gone to it for several other things, cuts on feet, stitches, this kind of thing. It's just usually not that busy. And even at the, at the highest, highest point of the COVID where they were talking about how the ERs were bulging, there was nobody in that ER. We, we had to take uh, one of the kids, they hurt, uh, they hurt their groin, uh, took them in at a midnight one night, and they were, the, the child was the only person in the entire ER when they were saying the places are bulging with COVID cases. He was the only one in there. He had the attention of the entire staff. All right. So we're pushing into day two here. And at this point, your wife has had enough. She's contacted the lawyer. Sounds like some kind of a cease and desist order may have been given, but you're not quite sure. Yes. Clearly, uh, you've stated over and over. Clearly, they know you're mad about what happened because they got some form of legal notification and your wife's all over it. And day two, she's asking for a patient advocate and to speak to a supervisor. Correct. Now, do you have one doctor only that's assigned to you or is it just whomever? No, it is a group. You've got, uh, you've got a pulmonary doctor, vascular doctor, maybe not vascular, although that's another story, heart doctor, kidney doctor. So there's, there's a group of them coming through. All of them want to do the same thing, remdesivir, and probably put you on a vent. Right. That's kind of what I'm getting at. When they administer medications in this day and age, they have to scan stuff, and that dipshit nurse couldn't have gotten that on his own. So you should know who signed off on that. I don't think he can scrub it out of the system either, because if there was an order put in, it was signed. I, I am a little bit familiar with some of the softwares, and I would be surprised if once the order was given and it was initiated and the drug was actually released, that record can no longer be scrubbed because the drug, of all the things that have just happened, they have to, they're supposed to be able to prove, oh, look, this drug went here. And so I don't think that can be scrubbed, by the way. No, probably not. Probably, you're probably right. I mean, I, I believe that's the case. Um, but he may have tried. That's all. So let's just harken back a moment, Jason, to Mr. and Mrs. K. So if you recall, we covered a show where a young couple wanted to have a baby naturally. They didn't want all kinds of drugs and antibiotics and all the things that are typically done at a new birth. When they went in with their plan, and I mean, I guess I'll call them legal documents. Everyone knows what I'm done. They've, they've put a plan in. They've got their affidavit, their statement of fact. It's all notarized and everything. It went from an army of nurses to one. 
So do you get the correlation here? What do you suppose happens to any given person who goes into a place and there's 10, 15 nurses back and forth? Um, and what difference would it make whether there were all those nurses and doctors or one? The moment they had their reins pulled in by the legal documents and realized that this is serious and these people know what they're doing, it went down to a single person. And why would that be? Because then it becomes manageable. It is that simple right? Isn't it? Is my logic flawed here? But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. We're picking up on day two and, and we started with the advocate. The wife wants a patient advocate like Jessica Brink and a supervisor. Well, to finish that point off, did you find out which of the doctors did that? Because he couldn't have gotten it on his own, the nurse. So they have to sign off on the drug. He goes and gets the drug. Then he bleeps the little bracelet, goes into the system. Is that what you saw going on? Well, I didn't see any of that going on. You know, you've got you in a room and you're not allowed out. It's almost like you're a little prison cell, but I don't think the door's locked. So I didn't see any of that. I just saw him coming to flush my IV and uh, me asking what he was doing. And that's where, so I I don't know. But nowadays they have the electronic charts where you can access them from your computer. I can get access. I, up to this point, have not wanted access. I don't, there's <laughs> like a block in my head. I don't want to go back and look at that chart because it's such a mess and it's such a horrific thing. I don't want to start trying to tear it apart and find more or have to relive some of it, but I can if I need to I, because I've got access to it. So I think I could find out who the doctor was, yes. You should be able to, was my point, but yes. uh, we're also at the top of the hour, so looks like we'll save day two for hour two. <laughs> I think we can get the rest of it in. All right, there it is. There was day one of a living man that had to go get medical treatment. I don't know how to stress anymore that the things that the medical professionals that we've had in have a plan, know what you're doing, and comprehend that you're responsible for you. And if you shirk that responsibility, other people are going to do things and you should have upfront what's acceptable to you. You should have ideas. You should be in lockstep with your significant others or family members, however that works. But as you can see, the first thing that happened is these people were separated from one another. And what we just covered was day one. He was on his own. He felt like crap. And I think everyone can put together how hard it is when you've gotten to that desperate point that you know you need help and you've got to be sharp enough to deal. And as you can see, day well didn't day one didn't end so well. Anyhow, that brings hour one of 368 to a close. Close. I'll hope you join us at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And uh, you'll be you'll have access to the full show as a member. And I would like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
beast of knowing.